When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Tara Chaklovsky has been a servant leader with Iridescent for more than 13 years. Through her initiatives with NGOs and foundations, Tara's work has increased access and awareness for coding skills in developing nations such as Bolivia, Pakistan, and Cameroon. In this episode of the Humane Podcast, Tara shares her take on what is missing for underrepresented communities in technology. Through her community efforts at Iridescent, we explore the inaugural AI Family Challenge, how technovation has increased access for girls who code, and what indicators are required for lifelong learning. Tune in to this episode of The Humane Podcast. This is Humane a weekly podcast focused on bridging the gap between humans and machines in this age of acceleration. My name is David Jakobovich, and on this podcast, I interview experts in sociology, psychology, artificial intelligence, researchers on consumer-facing products and consumer-facing companies to help audiences better understand AI and its many capabilities. If you like the show, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Welcome to the Humane Podcast. As always, my name is David Jakobovich, and I'm here to speak with you about how to bridge the gap on humans and machines in this fourth industrial revolution. Today's guest speaker is Tara Chaklovsky who is the founder and CEO of Iridescent. I've actually had the pleasure to connect with her and her team a few months ago on the AI Family Challenge. And there's so much opportunity for what's going on in AI today. And such an honor to have you on our show. Thank you, David. This will be fun. I'm looking forward, especially someone who judged our AI Family Challenge first year submission. So thank you. Uh, thanks so much. And for you know, listeners who don't know what is the AI Family Challenge, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so the AI Family Challenge is the first program for children and parents, so really a whole family, to gain a better sense of how their world is being shaped by AI and in a very practical way. So as a family, you can spend some time bonding together and learning about different AI technologies, image recognition systems in your phone, in in your car, in your nest. 
and actually get to make your own version or our own prototype that can tackle something that has been frustrating you or that is a big problem in your community. So this was a competition that we ran last year, and we had about 7,500 children and parents across 70 locations, 13 countries, really come together to firstly identify problems that are big and then try to create an innovate AI-based prototypes. So it's been very, very inspiring to see the sort of the world of new ideas that are coming out of places that are usually not part of the AI conversation. I thought it was so interesting to you know be one of these judges, if you will, for the AI Family Challenge. I believe I was reviewing team members from Asia, from Africa, from the Middle East, from, from all over. And it was so fascinating to see that in traditionally communities that are not empowered by that technology, that you can still have the best ideas, even without the software being at your hands. Yeah, and I think um, that's why it was an inspiring experience for us, because these are people that are curious about their world. They definitely hear about AI, but not in a way that is accessible or that invites them to be part of the conversation. And you may play around with your face recognition system on your phone, but you never think that I could make something better because you don't know how it works. And so if there is an opportunity to learn about it, it unlocks a whole other part of your brain where you're like, oh, I can use this to do this. And it is relevant to your local community. And so what comes out of all of this is these very rich ideas that are tackling local issues that are, of course, very interesting to all of us because they're very fresh. They're not part of our media. The same examples are rotated over and over again, and you get tired of hearing them. But you're hearing sort of perspectives from Cameroon, Ethiopia, Pakistan, Bolivia, and of course, all across the US, and especially from participants and people that you don't normally associate. So 70% of our parents, the adults that came were mothers, grandmothers, aunts, older sisters that came because I think maybe the leader of the program was a woman and they were inspired. But these are these kinds of interesting network effects that require quite a bit of work, but result in these very rich, unusual ideas coming to the forefront. I think taking it to the forefront of the family is such an essential part, really for that understanding of how we're bridging the gap of different ages with AI. You know, I know for one fact that my grandparents, uh, those who are still around, you know, they now have iPhones, right? Mm -hmm. They now have all this technology uh, at their fingertips. And these phones actually have AI sensors and AI chips, if you will, that can run smart processes. But I think what's more exciting than just having technology is when you get multi-generations together. You get the kids who are in primary and secondary school. You get the parents who are of a different generation and even the grandparents. You have such a, a wealth of diversity and understanding of how the world around us works and interacts that it's these new ideas that respond and it's no longer that ideas have to happen in Silicon Valley in New York City, but that you know, these 13 plus countries that are part of the AI Family Challenge could be, well, you could say the next new Silicon area. Yeah, and maybe, I mean, and that's not even maybe the goal, right? That you're trying to replicate Silicon Valley. I think it's more sort of even on an individual level that success for us is each person, the daughter, the son, the mother, the father, have a stronger sense of agency where if you see a problem in your world, you're like, I think 
this is my responsibility. There's an option to sort of bypass it and say, oh, the system is bad. But there's another option, which is sort of the entrepreneurial mindset, right? And it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be in Silicon Valley to sort of replicate innovation, but it's more each individual or citizen can have a stronger voice, can have a stronger influence, a stronger sense of agency. And even as something as little like in countries where women are not supported as much, if you can see changes in whether the girl gets has a stronger voice in her family even is a bigger part of the decision-making, that's a very big win. It doesn't have to be, oh, this company was launched public or whatever it is, right? Like that's one metric, but our metrics of success are, are we empowering individuals? And the metrics of success, so we can look at it in that sense of agency. And I think that's so important because we're all finding our voice in our life, right? And as we go through our journey, we discover more about who we are. And so I've been through that journey, you've been through that journey, and the hundreds and hundreds of participants in the AI Family Challenge have discovered that. What are some of the big takeaways or aha moments you've seen from some of the leading results, the, the leading participants? Yeah, so that we've just sort of wrapped up a pretty deep data analysis of all of this, looking at different slices of the data. So the overall finding was that these communities, they're very similar, despite pretty large differences in sort of socioeconomic status. Some of these countries have very, very low human development indices as sort of defined by the UNDP. They're agricultural communities, but then in the same group, we also have the US and Spain as two pretty developed countries. But the interesting commonality is that each one of these participants has is a risk taker, and that's very unusual. They have been open to this new experience. They took a risk on us. They're like this. They're unusual because very few people would sign up for an AI education competition. And it's kind of cool to see what is the persona of each of these participants. And one of the big findings was that parents really learned a lot about their children because they had a particular idea because it's rare for a child and a parent to work on a problem together And neither of them knows anything about it. And so they're both learning at the same time. And so the parent got to see their child in a completely different light. And the child got to see the parent in a completely different light. And one of the things that the parents came away with understanding is that they actually do not know how to support their children persist through a hard problem, a technical problem over a long period of time. This was a 15-week program. And I think this is something for us as an organization to improve our parent support techniques. But most of us watch YouTube videos and eat ice cream if we are given the chance. Very few would sort of say, okay, I'm going to build technologically sort of innovative project and prototype because it's hard work. And how do you keep motivating each other to do that? So I think parents came away learning that their children have a ton of ideas. They are awesome. They love their children. They have come closer as a family. They've bonded but they need more strategies to help their children persist. And I think that was something very interesting. I did not expect that coming out of the the data. But I mean, we have some hard statistics as well that I think above like 95% of the parents think that their child is capable of creating something that's AI-based in the future, that this is something definitely a relevant career for them, definitely realize that this is where they have to go in the future. Many of them, especially the families in Bolivia, came away realizing that they have a very strong role to play in bringing more programs like this for their community. So their sort of citizenship and leadership, their sense of ownership really increased after the program, which is a result of bringing the families together as a community. 
this was not an individual program that is run by individual families, but a lot of work went into bringing them together. So you see the power of group action. So I think these were some of the positive findings out of work that we did. Sure. And when you have countries like Bolivia with all the children and the parents, you almost see uh, in the AI family challenge, I'd imagine, a role reversal occurring from the child being supported by the parent, but the parents actually instead taking on that action to see how a child can lead initiatives, right? Becoming a leader at a young age. And they've done this here in the, in the challenge in, in many hundreds of groups. And what's next from a support perspective is they are in a lot of underrepresented communities, frontier nations, without necessarily all the resources to start coding and programming in AI. You know, myself as an educator in the space, I teach a lot of pro bono and give back to different communities. And I'm always thinking, you know, how do we bridge that gap? In fact, one way, episode three of the Humane podcast, we featured Samir Maskey from Fuse Machines or Fuse AI. And, you know, they're working on the initiative of having, you know, 10,000 people in under, you know, representative communities learning AI in the next couple of years. And I'm just trying to think for iridescent, the community, what can we do to then empower all your families to become activists and organizers who continue with that voice? And that's just a thought process on that support. And, and I wonder, is that something with, oh, getting Raspberry Pi kids, getting Chromebooks, you know, what does that look like for all the participants? So the other program that we run is Technovation Challenge, which is similar in sort of the roots of it, where girls find problems in their communities and create mobile apps. And it's for older students and they work not with their parents, but with mentors. And that program we've been running for nine years across more than 100 countries. And we've learned quite a bit about what works and what doesn't work. And not every underserved country or developing country is the same. And so that's why we started to sort of slice and dice the regions and the Human Development Index is a useful framework where they have more than like 170 sort of metrics there where things like what is the percentage of people that live under a dollar a day? What is the penetration of internet? How many women have access to internet? How many people have mobile phones? So all of these are elements that go into understanding where should we try to find partners and where are there local initiatives and resources that can really sort of give us a sort of tailwind. And so I think that's sort of the next stage of our work where we are not just saying, okay, here's an online curriculum. And we actually provide funding for each of our partners. And we as an organization are trying to be much more strategic in where we work. So we would say maybe 50% of our effort goes into collaborations where the local government is providing some degree of support in terms of infrastructure or that there's access to internet or the data is not that expensive. And then maybe 10% of our effort is in countries where there's absolutely no support system. And we recognize that that effort will take maybe 10 years where we are building local capacity, training the parents, the teachers, and then trying to figure out where do we bridge the equipment gaps. But I think this year we worked with a lot of science and technology centers. So for instance, in Bolivia, we worked with the Bolivia Tech Hub and they have the infrastructure. So they bring the Raspberry Pi and access to Chromebooks. And through the funding that we provided, they bought hotspots and data. It's a collaborative effort. Um, in Pakistan, we work with the Pakistan STEM club, I think. So these are all things that we are learning as we offer this program out to the world. I think what's amazing is hearing the technology that's being implemented through um, success stories that you're having in countries like Bolivia and Pakistan, and then realizing with your technovation initiatives, right, that 
developers uh, in 2019 are not the same as developers in 2009. So, you know, back then you need a computer to develop apps and build prototypes. But today, actually, with a regular Android smartphone, there are Python emulators on your phone that you can code a whole app, run it, see what happens. So I think that's super powerful. You know, one of my colleagues even mentioned that their parents were, I think, in Bangladesh, and you know, they were in a region that historically did not have a lot of technology. And for them, they bought like an Arduino board and connected it to a TV with a Bluetooth sensor. And there you had Skype. There you had a computer that was letting you video chat with your family halfway around the world. So I think with ingenuity and I think with creativity, there's going to be a lot of new opportunity in the tech space. And it's also to build tech leaders today. You know, in New York City, uh, I'm involved in a lot of education initiatives where I'm based. And a lot of them is also working with women in tech and women who code and, and girls who code. And you work a lot with these communities as well. And I've discovered this through your work with Iridesa and Tara. I wanted to you know, hear more of your thoughts on what do you think about diversity in AI and the direction that diversity has been taking maybe in the U.S. or maybe globally? Yeah, so that's a pretty sort of, it's a topic that comes up like a million times every day. And I mean, I think it's a core part of our mission. Our mission is to work with groups that have typically not had access to resources and opportunities and to empower them, that they can be leaders, but using technology, which is an amplifier. And so I think it's, yes, it's a core part of our mission. Uh, What do I think about the sort of diversity conversations, I think they're narrow many times. And usually these things become like checkboxes that we need a person of color, we need a woman, we need a whatever, a woman of color. And I think for me, what's more interesting is diversity of thought. You could have someone who is a person of color, but has actually had a pretty privileged background and they will think in very similar ways to a person who's white, right? And so the more interesting thing to me is your intellectual sort of diversity and the perspectives that you bring and the training and the experience that you've had. And I think that requires a deeper level of discussion and questioning and curiosity. And I think we are not there yet, but some I definitely hear that. I think it's the right thing to be doing. And yeah, I just, we survive because companies are are interested in increasing their diversity, but I want to move on (laughs) and say, we got to actually do the work. (laughs) You have to do the work. And, you know, I work uh, through a lot of my primary work with foundations and workforce initiatives as well. And you even see in the United States, a lot of these initiatives, companies says we're willing to give the funds and we're willing to be part of the conversation. But it often seems to stem from corporate social responsibility, right? It doesn't necessarily stem to much more like let's then you know, hire and retain and attract the talent that can be intellectually at the same caliber, um, no matter their background, especially from underprivileged countries and frontier communities. And I think the conversation needs to change. You know, I actually uh, spoke with one of my previous podcast guests, um, Kristen Kerrer. She's in Boston. And when we talk a lot about education and how education has moved online, right? And, you know, I think seeing it's becoming very digital, very digital, very quickly. It's scaling. We're in a zero marginal cost society. And I think that creates opportunity for individuals, um, especially those young who are trying to learn, who may not have those resources today. 
And so I'm tying this all in together to hear you said, like, it's time for us to move on and, and, and change that dialogue around diversity. You know, what are some of your thoughts on new strategies or what, what's next? I think sort of sitting down and listing what we don't know. And I think what we don't know is a lot about how humans learn, really. And it's not about whether you're black or brown or white. And I mean, it, they're more about how we are similar. And really, the hard part is that we actually don't know how to build or develop self-driven learners, right? Like we do have a pretty good understanding of how can we capture human attention, we have these addictive sort of Facebook feeds and things like that. But anytime there is a pretty complex technical problem that requires hundreds and thousands of hours of deliberate practice, we just resort to sort of drill and kill methods, right? Like, okay, you have to go through school and you have to go through school because it's good for you. And especially if you're poor, well, you have no choice. We expect poor people to be much more disciplined than those of us who are more privileged. And that doesn't make sense, right? So I think the questions have to come down to more sort of less about what do underserved communities need, but rather what makes us all human and what, where are we similar and where are the gaps in our understanding? And I think a lot of it is around self-motivated learning and how do you drive like resilient, in, like long-term interest in technical content? Because technical content is slightly different from, say, other arenas where you have to develop sort of the basics and you have to sort of practice the basics and then apply it and then sort of develop mastery. And that'll take you quite a few hours. It cannot be done in an hour of code. So it's a whole another thing to get someone excited about STEM. And my worry with a lot of these CSR initiatives is that these are run on one-year grant cycles. Now, in one year, you're not going to change anybody's life. And so you show sort of a pre and post gain in STEM interest, but that doesn't mean anything. And so the question is, how does this interest change over a period of 10 years? Well, nobody's going to fund you for 10 years. And so those are the kinds of things that I think we as, as a society, I think, yes, the conversations around diversity and inclusion are very important and they are resulting in a lot of funding that's going into this. But I think we have to ask some deeper questions. Yeah, so the grant cycle is quite interesting, right? So it's usually one year. Or sometimes you get locked into the three, four year plus if you're with certain organizations. But I think you bring up some very fascinating words here, right? Resiliency, persistence, mastery. And I think they're tied very much hand in hand. Like with resiliency does come mastery. With persistence on learning and being self-motivated comes mastery. And, you know, is that something that has to be taught? Or is that something that we have to inspire people to be self-motivated? I mean, it's both, right? That is part of, um, so it's not as if you're born so there's this professor of psychology, Professor Albert Bandura, and he's done some very, very sort of seminal work in this. And there are four factors that actually result in intrinsic motivation or a self-driven learner. And he believes that there's no such thing as intrinsic motivation. And the four factors are as, as follows. So I keep it in the way I sort of remind myself is like the four E's to self-efficacy, because self-efficacy is that confidence that I can do something and makes me persist, right? So the four E's are as follows. So the first is, exposure. So people, I mean, there's so much hype around role models. And yes, it's important, but it's only one small piece of this. So exposure to someone who you respect, it doesn't have to be of the same gender, it doesn't have to be a person who looks like you, it doesn't have to be the same person of the same color, but just someone whom you respect shows that you can do something that's difficult, right? And that this is meaningful. So there was the whole sort of excitement around digital badges, but it all flopped. And the reason was 
if somebody doesn't care about what the digital badge is selling, you're not going to be motivated by that digital badge. And so that's a very, very important point that a human being that we trust and respect has to say, you know, that program is really important. And this is why. And so that's the, you show that that's valuable. So that's one. The second is the experience itself. So you have to make it very easy to get started. It's like a safe sandbox and video games do it incredibly well. And that's why millions and millions of people spend billions of hours <laughs> playing video games. And so the experience is really, really important and it cannot be repetitive. So if you have the same challenge over and over again, and many sort of basic academic apps are very literal that way, where you hit a challenge and then you hit the same thing and you get the reward and we get tired extremely easily of predictable things. And so you want to make the experience very rich and scaffold it really well. And the third part is sort of the, you need someone to believe in you. So I call it expectations. And so this is your cheerleader or someone who really believes that, who has high expectations of you. And this is, could be a parent, it could be a teacher, and they don't have to be technical. They just keep saying, you know, you can totally do it. You can totally do it. And even when you don't, they believe in you, they believe in you. And then the last part is sort of, we are not just brains, but we are a whole sort of physiological system awash in chemicals and, and hormones. And there's the energy of this system. And if you're hungry and sleepy and tired, you're just not going to try something new. If you're stressed, if you're depressed, I mean, all of, you're just not going to act on stimuli, right? And so when, for some people, depending on their past experiences, one of these factors would be smaller or larger or whatever. But whenever you sort of analyze why you're interested in something, you realize that is one of these factors or really like two or more that are contributing to that. And so, yes, of course, you can build and create learning environments that have all four and video games, again, do this really well. So I think this can be totally taught. And then when they four are working in harmony, that's when you get very addicted to that experience. And then you become, you develop a new identity. I'm a maker. I'm a tinkerer. I build robots. I, I fix motorcycles or whatever it is. I'm an artist. Or I write. So it takes quite a bit of time. So probably somewhere above a hundred hours or more to begin to sort of scratch at the surface of a new identity and then somewhere probably, depending on how technical the subject is, probably between like thousands and thousands of hours to get to, to become where it's a core part of your identity, that this is who I am, right? But yeah, it's totally teachable. And think about teachable as lifelong learning and these words that you just, you know, shared with us that you talked about exposure and experience and expectation energy, you know, some of them I think are easier to resolve, you know, exposure is co-location, it's digitally connecting, there's a lot of pieces that can fit there. You know, experience is the commitment, it's that persistence, the resiliency for the mastery. Expectations is that community, as you mentioned, the teacher, the mentor, the parent, you know, the support network. But I think actually one of the biggest missing pieces is the energy. Even in privileged communities, right, you have students who take the SAT and they just like they do all-nighters and they, they don't have the right food and the right nutrition. But, you know, of course, that's not a problem that really needs solving. The problem that needs solving is looking at the underprivileged communities, the frontier nations like Bolivia and Pakistan, in the sense that do you even have a meal for your day so that you can be mentally focused to not have to worry about working or bringing home a paycheck so that you can learn tech and lift up your entire community? And I, I feel like that, am I right? Is that the missing piece that's still not fully solved? I think all pieces are not fully solved. 
I mean, I think if a community is very in high need, you will not have any of those pieces, right? Although you may have the parent, and I think that's what we saw. So we had an amazing partner in Cameroon. She's a, a researcher, and she actually won a fellowship, and she's actually currently in the U.S., but she runs this STEM program for the students in Yaoundé, which is the capital of Cameroon. And it's on the outskirts of the area. It's very agricultural. And she was saying that the families there are really worried about tomorrow's meal. They do not know where their food is coming from. Forget about planning for the next year. And so when this program came, she was very worried that it would be sort of very wonky. But she was saying she was very intrigued and inspired by how the families valued this because it was their ticket out of the current state. So she was saying, so the families meet met on Saturday mornings and many of them on the weekends, they actually spend, and children are a contributing part of the economy. So they actually go with their parents to the market, not to, or to sell their wares, they go out foraging for food. So to spend the morning of Saturday not doing that is a real sort of it has real consequences. But she was saying that was a very, very strong indicator of how much these families wanted to learn. And that story was powerful. And she was saying that because of the funds that we provided, the families, we they got T-shirts that was sort of part of the program. And she was saying one child started to cry because she'd never sort of been part of a prestigious group like this before, right? And so that is the extent of how these pieces are missing, but it can be done, right? But it has to be done. It takes a tremendous amount of effort to find these partners, to train them, to run the program on the ground, to build a sense of community, and then to come back next year and to continue the momentum because it's not as if they've reached a particular point. We just began to scratch the surface of this. And that's the the challenge people cannot comprehend trying to deal with all four at once. And that's why organizations tackle one problem at a time or one solution at a time. And that's why those things don't work unless we don't collaborate with other organizations. So you cannot just say, oh, we're going to launch videos of role models and it's going to change how these children perceive things. No, that's not going to do anything. I mean, it'll be one part of this the collective solution. And so that's why it's a pretty daunting task. And Nonprofits burn out all the time. I think in my 13 years of running Iridescent, I've seen so many nonprofits start and fail after seven, eight, nine years because this is, I mean, and start and for profits have the same issue. This is a complex social issue with multiple factors. And so it's taken time to try to understand which ones should we tackle. And oh, by golly, right? Like you're going to do everything at the same time. <laughs> you know, you've been running an amazing program at Technovation now for, for nine years. And you've seen a lot of efforts go in and change and evolve with these programs and that growth. And so with your other program, AI Family Challenge, it's inaugural, it's a new year, and we have now these final teams. And for those who are listening to the episode, um, I believe uh, May 18th, 2019, just in a few days, the, the grand finale is happening in San Francisco. And so much effort, right? So many strong indicators have led to this program. What does it mean to you? And and what do you see as some of those outcomes coming up in the next few days? Yeah, so it's nerve-wracking. And uh, I think it's been really cool to see how it takes a few believers. Um, So Google was one of our first funders of this program last year. And this was our inaugural year, but we've spent 13 years working with families and parents in much shorter chunks never in such of a large scale, never in AI. 
never on such a global level. And people just didn't think that it could work. And so it was sort of our technology corporation partners that believed that and thought that this was important and it was worth investing in. And that's the only reason why this was able to be launched. And then, of course, all the community partners agreeing to run this. They did all the hard work. And so I think it's tremendous amount of gratitude. And it's very cool to see that there's a lot of sort of nervousness and um, a lot of negative things everywhere all the time. But you have to sort of look at all these amazing human beings everywhere that believe that we can do better, right? And that we have a higher expectations of us and of societies. And so I think that's why um, running this nonprofit and sort of trying to solve these hard problems is very draining. And But it's moments like this when you're like, um, when you can look back and reflect and you're like, okay, people, it is valuable. It is making a change in the world that it's refueling for me and I think for my team as well. And I think May 18th would be something special. Where would you get families coming from all these different countries that have gone through a common experience? And I think that's the power of technology, right? That brings people together that would never have come together. You know, I uh, can only applaud all the efforts from, you know, everything you've done now over 13 years um, with your adjustment and higher technology corporation partners have been behind the scenes, you know, powering you to, to have all this progress. And for me, as again, one of the participants in the AI family challenge of judging and seeing all these teams, one of the aha moments I love this year, also as an educator, is how computer vision was so central to a lot of these projects. And you know, I think it um, was such an aha moment and, and such an awareness for families because the big topic in 2019 seems to be AI ethics. And the AI ethics is often around computer vision and around these different projects and not knowing what goes on behind the scenes. And I really loved um, projects, you know. Um, one of them I worked on was like, just identifying food in images, you know, versus uh, things that may be spoiled, right? The other ones are, you know, certain uh, images that have electronic parts that you could salvage, you know, versus not having. So some of these projects are very fascinating from all the families. And I think that is one of the missing pieces that we're beginning to start to solve. And perhaps you've talked about it with some of the teams and, and you're seeing those saying, we want accountability, we want transparency. And this all starts with ethics for projects. So I wanted to hear some of your thoughts around that. Yeah, so I think the first year we just did not have the time to um, really go deep because um, and to sort of create the curriculum, we put together some curriculum based on our best ideas and just jumped right in. And then when we were sort of debriefing after the season was over, we realized we needed to bring in sort of the big guns. So we put together an AI steering committee of researchers, roughly 25 AI researchers from all around the world and ask them to sort of review the curriculum and the impact data and some of the problems that we saw coming out of the submissions. And there's a big section now um, that we're going to be including in the curriculum for the next season, which, I mean, ethics is a very charged term because it immediately sort of has a negative tone to it now with all the media coverage. But it's more about thinking about the, just thinking deeply about the product that you're building, Right. And I think at the at the core of it, it even comes down to this is a great educational experience where you have time to pause and reflect even on your own thinking, because rarely do we get to do that as individuals, right? And sort of developing your own self-awareness. So why did you think that way? 
what contributed to you sort of having a particular stereotypical idea. And so we're putting in um, checklists and guidelines when you're creating data sets and how you're going to collect this data. And it's a very, very unique experience where individuals like normal human individuals who would never be product innovators and developers are now being asked to develop products that go and touch many, many, many people. So they have to go through some of these sort of processes. And it's our responsibility as the curriculum developers to empower them with the right tools, right? And so we are trying to stay ahead of this field and stay connected to all the cool things that are happening. I think the coolest thing that I heard recently was this thing called the Data Nutrition Project that's coming out of MIT, where they want every data set to have sort of like a nutrition label where it says, what is in your data set? And I think that's great, right? It's not coming at it from a negative angle that, oh my God, you you created a biased data set. No, but okay, this went into it. What purpose are you going to use this data set for? Think about who your audience will be and then does it apply? So it's a very, it's a neutral way of empowering people to think a little bit about all these implications because yes, we're all inherently biased. <laughs> That's how we operate, but we can always improve. We can always improve and, you know, lifelong learning um, requires AI and AI also requires lifelong learning in both uh, parts. And, you know, I think that bias is some of the aha moments that were also identified, again, in these AIFC, these AI family challenge projects where families would realize, wow, it's actually really challenging to train some of these systems to have um, a good resiliency and to have a good result that could be consistent over time. You know, I think one of the big myths I like to dispel uh, for those who are seeing, you know, self-driving cars coming onto the road and these apps that seem to have perfect, perfect, you know, results every single time is it's not all done by a machine. You have a lot of humans, you have a lot of people training and supporting a lot of teams. And, and I, I think that is, you know, one of the big takeaways is that it's a partnership between humans and machines. Mm-hmm. It's a partnership between human and AI, and it needs to be a global conversation. And um, whether it's through video games, whether it's through learning, whether it's through participating in competitions where the exposure is offered, I think each and every learner is going on that journey and the work you're doing is so instrumental there. So I think one of my final questions for today is, you know, what's next, right? You have all these amazing initiatives and even with education, but what, what's on the horizon? Creativity. So I think I've been doing a lot of sort of studying and thinking about how can we empower our participants to be more creative, more innovative and I think there's room here where we as the curriculum developers and developing sort of the educator training programs can better arm the parents and the teachers to support students in sort of thinking more creatively. And there's actually quite a bit of work done in the uh, creativity and engineering space where um, there are better uh, rubrics and heuristics for problem finding because that has been one area that has been very, very challenging most individuals have not been asked to come up with new problems to solve. You're given a problem to solve. So it is a very uncomfortable situation to be in. So yes, if you're a risk taker, you will thrive in that. But most of us are not risk takers. But you can be taught these kinds of things. And so we are trying to figure out how can we make this process the first step of starting uh, less uncomfortable? And how can we, what are some prompts like what has frustrated you recently, right? Like that's a simple question, right? And so you can begin to go down, but as the curriculum developers, we can provide some of these structures so that we can help you come up with better problems because 
a lot of the times you come up with problems that you hear in the media, right? So these are not things that are truly problems. And so if your problem itself is very mundane, of course, your solution will be mundane. So that is our next sort of frontier where it's not just we want to empower the participant. I think we're doing that. I think the next step is for them to really contribute innovative ideas um, to this global conversation. I cannot agree more. You know, teaching a lot in data science and working in industry, when I have students who do capstone projects and, you know, they come up with ideas for me, I say, pick a moonshot challenge, right? Pick a, pick a problem that's so big that I don't really care if you know how to solve it yet. You're going to learn the tools to get there. And you can dissect that problem into smaller milestones that you'll start to achieve and you'll make a difference, right? And that difference can be local to your community and that scales up, right, to whole countries, whole continents. And before you know it, your impact lifts up your family, lifts up your community, and uh, you have AI everywhere. And I think that's the direction we're moving. And this conversation today that we're having, um, Tara, I think is so fascinating on that, right? Lifting up everyone. And so I really appreciate you for being here on the Humane Podcast. Thanks so much for everything you do and looking forward to catching up with you soon. Awesome. Thank you, David. This is a fun conversation. That's it for this episode of Humane. I'm David Jakobovich. And if you enjoyed the show, don't forget to click subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to this. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll talk to you in the next one. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.